Yo, what's poppin'? Welcome back to the Master and Apprentice. We apologize for Tuesday as well as Friday not putting on an episode, but we are here today. We are here now. So what we're thinking about doing in the future is Rush and I actually had a discussion about this is potentially making a Twitter account dedicated for our podcast. So that way, if you do want to stay informed, you can follow that. So that way, if we do have any um, complications or audio problems or whatever it might be, uh, you can stay informed directly from there. So that way you will always be notified on what's currently going on with us on the podcast. Because right now, if you don't see an episode Tuesday or if you don't see an episode Friday, you're probably like, yo, where it at? Um, where where my peeps at? Where my Star Wars content at? Yeah, yeah, so we don't. What he said. <laughs> um, what what we don't want is just to leave you in the dark. So once again, we apologize. Um, we'll probably put together like a Twitter or something to kind of like tweet out or Instagram, whatever it might be for social wise to kind of hopefully tell you what's going on with us. But today we we're kind of glad to be here. I know it kind of took a little bit scheduling time. There was a lot of complications between Rusty and I to get this episode underway, but I'm glad we are here today. I'm glad we're actually doing this episode because today we're actually going to be talking about Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. Now, I'm super hyped about this, and Rusty and I are going to actually make this a series where we're going to do all the films, all nine. We're also going to do Rogue One and Solo, so theoretically more than nine, but today we're mainly only focusing on the Phantom Menace. We took some notes, we rewatched the film, and we're going to discuss it scene by scene and give you our personal interpretations of what this movie is to us, as well as different scenes and really kind of engage each other into uh, what we liked, what we didn't like. And overall, maybe things that, I don't know, Rusty saw that I didn't and vice versa. So I'm hyped. I don't know about you, Rusty, but I'm hyped. I'm pumped. Let's get this started. For sure. He hyped. He ready. So, okay. Let's let's kind of go into the scene. So I, in the beginning, as we see, we see a ship fly toward the screen in episode one, whereas in episode four, we did not. Which was a very interesting way to start out the series, because if you remember in episode four, we see a Star Destroyer and the Tanta Four flying away from the screen, symbolizing you're expanding on a universe. And to me, when I saw the the Naboo ship flying toward the screen, I thought it was symbolizing something we kind of already know, but we're kind of getting a little bit more familiarized with since the ship is coming toward us. I thought there was a really cool simile between the original films and the prequels to say, hey, look, this is what you already have, but we're also giving you more of it. Um, I know that's not a huge, huge detail, but that, that is something Um and of course, in the opening crawl, too, we, we see the first text that says, like, Galactic Republic. And back then, I didn't know what that was, because this came out in 1990, uh, 1999, I believe. I was only, like, nine years old, I think, when this came out. Um, so, growing up now, and seeing all the films, Clone Wars, and really getting involved in the universe, we know what the Galactic Republic is, but I don't think it was super established back then. And also... Uh, kind of a mind-blowing thing because I don't know what you thought about this, Rusty. Is um, in in the hallways, not the hallway, in the um, in the chamber scene when they landed on this separatist ship, and they were in their like little, I guess you could say, meeting room. They kept saying, um, 
Jedi's and Master Yoda, and that was the first time we ever heard his name outside of uh, the original trilogy films. And we were thinking, "Oh, he's a thing. He's actually a Jedi." Because I mean, granted, we we never really understood in the original films how pivotal Yoda truly was, or what Yoda truly was back then too. Because I know he said he was that Master Jedi and he trained people in the forest, but we never really got to see that or experience that or hear that. So given that ability to mention that in the prequels, like one of the opening lines, um, super unique. And to kind of like roll back a little bit too, I know I'm kind of like jumping all over the place, but another interesting simile that I found between the original trilogy and this film is um, the Tanda 4 was kind of stuck in the attractor beam um, with uh, the new trilogy, or not the new trilogy, sorry, the original trilogy as your opening scene. But these guys are willingly going into a um a separatist enclosure like literally a separatist base so i thought that was interesting that um it's going away from the screen and you're getting sucked into a machine whereas it's the complete opposite you're willingly going into a machine and you're coming towards the screen in the prequel trilogy i don't know what your thoughts about all that are um, I know they're very small details, but to me, they kind of stood out. But to me, I think the biggest thing that did stand out was the whole Yoda Yoda reference. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand where, where you're coming from. I mean, when I really think about it now, one of the big things that I kind of noticed but didn't pay much attention to was the fact that, like you said, it was this random ship that was not going to be um, attacked, but they were landing on an enemy ship, essentially. Um, and, you know, they, they were, like you said, they weren't being, like, held against their will. There was nothing kind of screwy going on, if you will, that ended up being that they were greeted by droids. I don't even remember that as soon as they got off the ship. And it kind of ends up being like, this seems a little weird. They're normally attacking them, or um, there's usually something going on that is more warlike than just coming on for a peaceful talk. Um, and then you start to slowly see it un- unravel. But the first, what was that, five minutes or so of the movie, it's it's definitely kind of a little bit of a head scratcher when you see a lot of this stuff going on, kind of thinking, this doesn't really make sense. Yeah, for sure. And one thing I definitely noticed, too, is I don't know if you noticed this, too, in the original trilogy. Um, I don't think we ever really, well, no, I actually stand corrected. There's IG 88, but he had like two seconds of screen time. Um, I didn't think we really saw an evil droid per se, like doing evil deeds. So what I mean is yes, there is the mouse droid on the Death Star and theoretically it's an Imperial droid. And yes, we got like the, what job of the pod calls Dr. Ball is that the interrogation droid, but those aren't inherently doing evil deeds. They're not like actively going out and killing people like with almost a, uh, a conscious in a way. Whereas these battle droids we actually see are in a way, almost in a way free thinking. Um, yes, they're taking orders they're doing commands, but they're holding people hostages in this movie. They're shooting people, they're killing things. So I thought that was an interesting nod to like the original trilogy where, yes, you did have a couple things like IG-88, who's a bounty hunter droid. But like I said, you never really saw him or really knew what he was doing unless you played a couple of the games back then or maybe even read some of the books. But 
he was evidently a bounty hunter, but we didn't really know much about him. But giving that ability to really showcase droids can inherently be either a good or bad option was a very unique thing because when we saw R2 in the original trilogy, we were like, hey, droids are good. Then we saw three C-3PO, hey, droids are good. We saw a couple other rebel droids, but we never really understood there could be a bad droid, which kind of expanded on our universal knowledge of what droids potentially could be capable of. And I don't know if you found that interesting, but for me, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I didn't think about it until you just brought it up, but that's that's a really good point. Um, and just a side note, one of the things that I've noticed when rewatching um, the um, episodes one, two, and three is also that the the droids are they're actually pretty pretty comical and interesting characters. Where you know you'll hear them say, "Have you ever killed a Jedi before?" and the other one says, "No," and then they kind of go, "Uh oh," or you know, it, it it's interesting, right? they actually wrote them with a little bit of a personality like you were saying instead of them just all being autonomous which i i thought was a real twist yeah well i correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like in episode one the droids were a lot more task oriented focused and in two and three they became a little bit more comical and we definitely see this a lot more in the clone wars yeah um where the droids are not really um uh i i can't think of a terminology for them but like uh soldiers like they were in this movie like you see um a couple people order droids like take them to prison or do this and they they like they had that dark like roger roger right compliance voice where like if you if you see them in um the clone wars like hypothetically if grievous were to be like hey take them to prison and the droids would be like prison him are you sure and then it it does have that whole comedic aspect to it and i think i mean a lot of people hated the droids a lot of people hated everything um regarding like jar jar binks and everything but i thought the droids were an interesting aspect to the star wars universe especially introducing them now in episode one and i mean that's how i kind of feel about the droids i know a lot of people may or may not like them but to be honest, after watching the Clone Wars, after watching Episode One, Two, and Three, I kind of like the introduction of the droids here. Yes, we didn't get a great backstory, we didn't get a huge amount of detail about them, but the introduction of the droids for me, I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. I think they're a very interesting um, element to watch slowly unravel. There were there were a few scenes, if I recall, in Episode One where they had a little bit of personality, but for the most part, they were pretty. Um, pretty stuck on task yeah so let's move on with the uh the plot a little bit so we see the jedi in the little meeting room i guess you can say and another interesting part about that is they were kind of like locked with dioxys i know we talked about this last time before we had this whole um audio technical issue dioxys was um famous gas so it was mainly used by bosk the bounty hunter so every time i hear dioxys gas i i just instantly think of him because that was one of his signature weapons they definitely implemented that really well in uh star wars battlefront 2 of the game but um to kind of get out of there um of course they opened the door they busted out they did their thing and qui-gon when he was locked out of a room he took his lightsaber and then shoved it through a door 
And of course, the doors kind of started to melt a little bit. And that was the first time we ever seen a Jedi utilize his weapon that way. Because to me, when I was rewatching this, I'm like, yo, that's that's crazy. Like, this is the first time we witnessed that. Um, and I thought that was really unique to, like, use your lightsaber in a way that originally maybe we never thought of doing. So having him put that lightsaber through the door and having it melt or even cut a small circle... Like at, at the same time, that was probably something we all kind of thought about. Like, hey, can these things cut through doors? Can these things um, melt a hole or something, right? So, yeah. go on. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, for, for me, it, it shows the power, like you're saying, of, of a lightsaber. Before, you'd see them cutting people or harming, you know, giving like flush wounds to people and, and cutting droids in half and stuff like that. But you never really get a example of just how strong they actually are until there's that scene where it shows basically that if Qui-Gon wanted to, it looked like he could keep pushing the lightsaber all the way through the door and he starts getting through until the, the, um, the battle droids show up and then they have to um, engage them. Right. But- it's a great way to show you just how strong they actually are. Right. And then after that, we get the scene with um, Darth Sidious. And then we kind of get that whole scene with Almadala um, and the trade Federation. And then Palpatine discussing with the, the Naboo Senate of this invasion um, and then we kind of see that whole invasion take place. And then this is where we first meet Jar Jar Binks, everyone's favorite character in Star Wars. Um, I'm being absolutely sarcastic when I say that. Um, for me, I don't mind him as a character too much. I know a lot of people have a lot of discrepancies with him, but personally, I just don't mind him as a character too much. I know they made him a little bit better in Clone Wars and they didn't give him too much of a role. But man, when I say... Amin Best, the guy who uh, played Jar Jar Binks, ooh, he got so much hate. Did he? I didn't know that. So much hate. Oh, man, it was terrible. Um, and I felt bad for the guy. I mean, granted, now he's on to bigger and better things. He's actually uh, hosting Jedi Temple Challenge, I believe it's called, on uh, Disney XD for kids, which I watched an episode of. It was kind of cool. But I'm glad he kind of got this new Star Wars role because like we kind of talked about, man, a lot of these people who are in Star Wars are uh, massive Star Wars fans. So having a fan who is like, yo, I get to play Star Wars. I'm, I'm a character in Star Wars, super hyped. But to only have everyone hate you at the end of the day, it's not a good look. It's not it's probably not the best feeling either. So, yeah, so that little side note, little side note, um, I never necessarily disliked Jar Jar Binks. And there was actually a theory about um, Jar Jar becoming like a Sith Lord, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, so that was that was a thing. But what's, what's your opinion on Jar Jar when we first met him? When I first met him, he was one of my favorite characters just because of the fact that he brought such a comedic element to the movie. Um, I mean, the, the movie, when, when you go back and you rewatch it, you realize there was actually some more comedic aspects to it. But when you first watch it, it's kind of a way to break the ice a little bit because it starts off relatively tense for the most part. Um, and I, I also think if you think about it from a children's perspective, some of the Star Wars movies are a little bit out of some kids' depth to understand what the hell's going on. And I think sure. 
character like Jar Jar was actually, whether people like it or not, I think it was a really good way to engage the children that were going to the movies, that were watching it with their parents that wanted to see the film. So I feel Jar Jar was probably a really good way to bridge those two worlds to come together um, because he was very comedic. He was silly and they had to talk to him like he was a child. So I helped explain a lot of what was going on to the younger viewers. Yeah. And that's something that, to be honest, now that you mentioned it, it, it makes sense. It's something I necessarily didn't think about at times. Because when you look at Star Wars, it came out in, in 1977, right? Um, then you had your three films. Then George Lucas decided to name Episode 4, Episode 4. Which everyone's like, what does that mean? What, what's 4, 5, and 6? Where's 1, 2, and 3? And then when he did 1, 2, and 3, your crowd in 1977 who saw this film is older. They have kids. They have that ability to take them to the movies. So what's kind of cool is Star Wars has three whole generations of people. Like for us now, we're older, man. So if we do have kids, we could theoretically have taken them to um, seven, eight, nine. The w- same way the original trilogy people probably took their ch- kids, like my dad took me, to the one, two, and three. So that's a good point. I never thought about Jar Jar being that comedic relief for the child. I know a lot of adults didn't like it, but I think a lot of the kids liked it. And to be honest, man, the prequel films are my favorite trilogy out of all three. I love the original trilogy too. And I don't have a problem with seven, eight, nine. I do have small little things I disliked about some of the movies in there, but they're little, little small things, but it's like, Hey, personal preference. It is what it is. But as a, as a fan, I enjoy all films, but I think for me, the, the prequels are the most enjoyable. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a, one of those connections I've just now come to realize about those whole generational gaps. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think of my mind, when I first saw episode one, like you were saying, we were both around nine or ten years old. I mean, I don't know about you, but I used to think Jar Jar was hilarious. And then I go back and I watch him now, and obviously – it's kind of unfortunate as you get older, some of the things you thought that were funny as a child kind of seem stupid or just kind of not nearly as, as funny as you get older. Um, you start to see the world differently. But I, I think, you know, when I think about going back to seeing it for the first or second time back in 99 or 2000, I couldn't stop laughing. I, I thought he was hilarious when he gets his, mouth tased and his hand stuck in the pod and out and you know now it's kind of like oh that's a small scene but i i could have sworn as a kid that that scene drew out for you know three or four minutes and it ended up being a 30 second to maybe minute and a half scene but it was just so um you know consuming to me to watch this happen as you see anakin about to start up the the pod and everything to me that was just like rolling on the floor laughing Oh, for sure. Definitely. No, I definitely, definitely agree with you on that. So the next thing we see is we see uh, Qui-Gon saving Jar Jar from a speeder. And that's the first time we see one of those new speeders, which is great. Um, Jar Jar takes them to the Naboo underwater location where all the Gungans are. Another interesting note is when they were meeting, uh, I guess you could say the Gungan Council. 
um, Boss Nass, the big green frog-looking guy, is the only guy on the council, or just in general, who looks like that. So that's an interesting note, because everyone else on the council was a Gungan. I don't know if Boss Nass is a Gungan. I, I'm assuming he is, but he's just a different-looking one. Um, so to me, I thought that was interesting, how the whole council was the same species as Jar Jar, and you have their ruler who isn't. Um, from there, we kind of move on, and they they kind of recruit Jar Jar and becoming one of their quote unquote uh, navigational guides to kind of like persuade the Gungans, hey, don't kill this man, he's an asset to us. Uh, when they do that, they kind of jump in a Naboo uh, underwater ship. They kind of go exploring. A ship gets bitten by a fish, and then a bigger fish eats that fish, and another bigger fish eats that fish, and then Qui Gon delivers the uh, famous line. There's always a bigger fish, which I thought was a really cool metaphor now rewatching it for just life in general. It's a very big theme in the movie, too, is everyone wants power and control and everything. Um, and Qui-Gon saying there's always a bigger fish is really replicating there's always going to be a more powerful Jedi than you. Like, you think you're strong? 20 years down the road, there probably will be someone more powerful than you. And also, if you really think about the whole dark side aspect right now, there's always a bigger fish. Dude, I just made this connection now. Um, he orchestrated the Clone Wars. Palpatine, right? He orchestrated this invasion of Naboo. This senator is Palpatine. He has Darth Maul. So think about this from like a, a food chain perspective. You have your battle droids, right? What's above those battle droids? Darth Maul. What's above Darth Maul? Palpatine. So when Qui-Gon's saying there's always a bigger fish, I thought that was a really cool connection just to the Force in general. And now, to the dark side in general right now, because, yes, who's controlling this droid army beyond the um, uh, the Separatist Alliance? You have Darth Maul, right? You have a lot of these Sith Lords who will eventually be coming to play who will be, quote-unquote, generals, like General Grievous, even though he's not a Sith Lord. Count Dooku. Um, Darth Maul, but then who's above them? Palpatine. So when when you had to say there's always a bigger fish, I thought that was a really cool um, nod to this whole uh, food chain in the forest. I, mean, I don't know if you ever realized that. No, I I never actually thought of that until you just finished saying it. Yeah, man, that's that's really neat. So and then the Naboo people start their invasion. Um, or the uh, the separate destructor invasion, uh, Qui Gon, Obi Wan try to get him out of there to go back to Coruscant. Which fun fact, one of my favorite Star Wars planets. Um, Naboo, by the way, was introduced in this film too, and it's a beautiful planet. And that's one thing I really love about the prequel trilogy. They introduce such iconic planets, such iconic music as well. Um, so after that, we. We land on, what was it? We land on Tatooine because their ship, unfortunately, it needed a couple parts. From there, we meet Watto, who we then meet Anakin from because they had an unfortunate factor with the ship. And they tried to bargain for a part. Didn't work. Met Anakin. Um, Jar Jar gets in a fight with Sebulba. And then, long story super short, Qui Gon finds out 
Anakin is force sensitive. Um, they enter in a pod race. His mother didn't like the idea of him being on a pod race. And um, Qui-Gon's always giving little hints to Anakin. It's like, oh, pod race. Hmm. You know, you have to have Jedi reflexes to do that. They're always dropping little hints to Anakin. And Anakin's like, boy, what you mean? <laughs> like, I, I'm a kid. <laughs> like, what do you want? Speak English. And then, right. And then he, we, we see the pod race um, occur, do its thing. Um, uh, whatchamacallit. Oh, man, one crucial detail I totally forgot. We got to backtrack a little bit. The whole R2 scene. Oh, yeah. Um, totally forgot that was a thing. We get introduced to R2 here. We really get introduced to R2. And I, I thought it was a really cool um, scene because he was the last surviving droid. Everyone got blasted off. And what's crazy is it completely um, flips what episode four does. R2 got blasted by a TIE fighter or I think Vader. I can't remember. I'm going to have to rewatch the film. And Luke had to pretty much save the day, right? Now, all these people in the ship are helpless. They need these droids to save the day. And R2 saved the day by um, redoing the shield generator. So I thought that was a really cool nod to episode four and kind of like a little flip in a way. Um, now we go back to Tatooine. The whole pod race thing. Uh, Qui-Gon goes to Watto and says, hey, um, if I win, you free both of them. And he goes, nope, not doing that. And then he goes, all right, bet, free one of them. And he goes, all right, cool, uh, the boy. And of course, we see Qui-Gon do the whole force um, maneuver to try to manipulate the dice, which he does. Um, and then Anakin wins while we also see a lot of cheating from Sobulba. I hate Sobulba. I don't know if you like him or not, but I do not like him. Um, Tuscan Raiders get involved, and that was kind of cool because Tuscan Raiders are from the original trilogy, and we kind of get that return. Um, but another thing I noticed too is there is a young, um, can't remember their names, the Rodian. And for you, Rusty, the Rodians are like the little alien species. They're green, small mouth. Um, I speculate that small Rodian on Tatooine is um, Greedo, the same person who met Han in original trilogy. It could be. So I, I think I think that's the case because at the same time they both kind of grow up and do their own thing. So we will just see. Um, Anakin gets freed by being a slave from the pod race he won. He gives his mother the money. Qui-Gon says, hey, you're going to become a Jedi. Follow me. Um, and this is a very, very interesting dynamic, right? Um, I would love I would love your opinion on this too. So Jedi, right? Um Jedi can't have attachments, right? That's that's forbidden the Jedi Order. It's because so that way you're not really focusing on a person, you're focusing on the task at hand. Because oftentimes when it comes down to emotion, some people will put emotion aside and focus on the task at hand, but some people are really driven by emotion. So they'll do whatever they need to just to make sure that person they care about is okay. 
um, which of course we see the downfall of Anakin for. But right when um, Qui-Gon was getting Anakin to go to the Jedi Temple, Anakin's like, I don't want to leave. Will I see you again? And then this, in my mind, is like, this is why the Jedi take kids a lot younger into the Jedi Order. Because they don't have that sense of attachment. They don't have that sense of fear and loss that um, they do. And what was interesting is Qui-Gon knew um, this. Qui-Gon, of course, they don't, he really doesn't follow the council that much. Qui-Gon's always about will of the force and what does the force do rather than going by completely by the books. So I thought that was an interesting nod of Qui-Gon visibly going against what the Jedi stand for and not necessarily breaking a Jedi rule, but um, kind of feeding into this, this is a chosen one. I don't care how old this kid is. Yes, he does have attachment issues with his mother right now, but we're still going to train him. And I, I would love your, I would love your thoughts on that because I thought it was super interesting to have that ability to kind of make that connection because oftentimes we always see Anakin and Obi-Wan and have this little argument of, Hey, mind your emotions and getting to see that in, um, in episode one, when Qui-Gon was trying to take Obi-Wan uh, and we see that emotion, we see that attachment, we see everything that Jedi shouldn't do right in that beginning scene, right when he uh, tries to take uh, Anakin to uh, Coruscant. Yeah, I mean, I, I never thought of it that way, but that, that's a really uh, that's a really good point. Um, especially because, like you and I have discussed before, that you know, as as Anakin's character kind of grows up, and we'll do a much deeper dive in episodes two and three about some of his attachment issues. Um, but I, I, I think it's a really good point that they kind of write him like that, just so you can slowly start to see some of the seeding of. Um, not necessarily the dark side, but just insecurities. And, and I think the other thing that kind of happens a little after this is also actually before he brings him to the Jedi Council and they're on the ship, they also talk about the fact that Anakin does that he's cold all the time. Yep. And initially you think, oh, that's just going to be because he is in space. He's never been in space before. And then later on, Yoda and I think... Um, who else? Um, I forget who pl- who Samuel L. Jackson played again. Um, uh, Windu. Windu. Yoda and Windu are both saying, you know, how do you feel? And then he says cold again. And they're both like, yeah, that's kind of a sign of not necessarily the dark side, but kind of um, not necessarily hard attachment either. But it, it shows kind of a sign of uncertainty because he's feeling cold. It's kind of, you know, representing, I guess, the, the dark side um, on a very low level. And then of course you see that manifest later on um, the, the yeah. other, you and I had talked about, and I kind of wanted to bring up too, cause we kind of glossed over this real quick was C3PO. So you oh, actually yes. C3PO um, before the pod race, they have the sandstorm. And C-3PO is, you know, turned off sitting in Anakin's room. And then Anakin turns him on, but he doesn't get a chance to completely finish working on him. And the um, what, what ended up happening that I thought was interesting is, and this is a little bit of a, a jump ahead, but I promise there's a connection, that 
C-3PO, as you learn later on in, I think it was episode eight or nine, is unable to read the um, or speak the Sith language. Yeah. And I thought this was fascinating because when you see C-3PO, technically he's not finished when Anakin leaves him. So it makes you wonder when was he ever completed? And I just thought it was an interesting connection that Anakin, having made C-3PO, never even knew about the Sith language. So how could he program him not to speak or be able to read that language? I thought that was an interesting little um, tidbit that's kind of left out because Anakin built him as a kid that was just really good with tools and technology. Yeah. So we all know C-3PO is a protocol droid and he's designed to speak all these different languages, right? Um, I want to say maybe it's after, after episode three. The only reason why I say that is because I know we're going to talk a little bit more about this while we get to, when, when we get to episode three. Um, at the end of episode three, um, after Order 66 and Obi-Wan goes to Tatooine, etc., uh, we hear Bail Organa saying, um, have the protocol droids memory wiped? Um, and what does that mean? Does that mean like everything's wiped? Because um, we see three, C-3PO have all those language and dialogues still um, present. So kind of makes me think, was it installed afterwards? Or was it a thing? Because you would think, hey, um, your memory is going to be wiped. You would lose that aspect. You would lose that um, cognitive um ability to remember the Sith language um so i don't know that's a very good point i know a lot of people online are discussing that too because i don't think i don't think um anakin knew a Sith language or what it is because to be honest why would a little kid he couldn't be more than like what eight or nine years old at the time um why would a little kid program a Sith language, like a dark side language, into his protocol droid that he's making for fun and just to make a friend. Because one, where do you learn that language? Number two, who taught him that language? And number three, why do you block it off if that were to be the case? Because it, it makes no sense. That's why I think potentially it might be something afterwards or something C-3PO... Um, because uh, my, my man's gotten to so many adventures in the Clone Wars and afterwards that maybe someone did something to him or maybe even like a Sith did something to him or maybe it could have been done during the Clone Wars too so that way um, if they ever needed a Sith translation uh, it could be a thing because no one uh, no one knew the Sith were that prevalent or maybe it could have been like a translation tactic where um uh, we see Darth Vader now becoming so prevalent in the galaxy in 4, 5, and 6. Uh, maybe they thought it was a great idea to have a Sith translation just in case they ever were to run into more Sith because no one no one outside the Sith or Jedi knew the rule of two except in the uh, original, uh, not original trilogy, but the prequels. But maybe, maybe it's kind of like a... Um, I guess you could take a precaution just in case anything were to happen. They do have that ability to translate. That's at least how I kind of understand it. I don't, I don't know. Very. So very, I would love your, 
for me, I, like I said, that was just an observation that as I thought about it, kind of bridging those two completely different trilogies together, it's interesting to see that little tidbit. I mean, even due to the fact that, I mean, for all you know, Anakin could have just given him some language chip that let him speak over however many languages he could speak, and that was kind of it. And I just think it's interesting that they banned one language, and he wouldn't have even known about it. No, for sure. So now we see Anakin, um, like you said, always being cold on the ship with Padme, and you can definitely see that's a theme, because of course we all know Anakin is Vader, and... um, being cold is a, a simile to the dark side for whatever reason, because it kind of makes sense. Cold is kind of like winter and winter is kind of a darker month and something like somewhere everyone's happy and outside. Um, then we get to Coruscant. We meet Palpatine for the first time and Chancellor Valorum. Um, really get engaged. We really truly see here um, when she was talking or Palpatine was talking Hello, can you still hear me, Rusty? Yeah, you cut out for a second. All right, cool. So well, I, I got I got a phone call. Sorry, and I have to deny it real quick. Um, so see Palpatine's expert manipulation here um, during the the Queen. He goes, "Hey, uh, the Republic really needs a great Chancellor who isn't going to side with these people, who isn't going to be easily manipulated." And um, Palpatine, of course, is manipulating her the entire time, which is a very interesting fact. Um, and we really see his true uh, mastermind throughout this whole plan. Um, and then we kind of see this whole Jedi Council thing where Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan go to the council. They kind of plead to train Anakin, but Yoda and everyone's like, nah, he's too old. We can't do that. Um, and I thought that was interesting, too, because Qui-Gon's like, no, I'm training him. I don't care what you say. I'm training the boy. Um, and this is really cool, too, because now we originally didn't see many Jedi. We only saw Luke and occasionally Obi-Wan, and that was it. But now we actually get to see there's more. There's a whole council. Um, so to me, I thought that was really cool. I'm um, seeing a lot more Jedi. And, of course, as I kind of told you, for me, my favorite's Plo Koon. So seeing my man there and all these other really cool Jedi, which, of course, in Episode 1, you don't see a lot of or there's really not a big backstory for um, and of course, as you watch Clone Wars, read some of the comics and books, a lot of these characters get a little more fleshed out, which is nice. But um, it was kind of eye-opening and mind-boggling to see more than one Jedi on a screen at a time. And I don't, I don't know how you felt during that whole situation, but get, getting to see Yoda actually interact with people, getting to see Mace Windu, getting to see all these people um, on screen was super cool. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, um, especially during the rewatch, when I first saw it, it kind of didn't cross my mind. Some of it's because I was so young, too. But during the rewatch, um, it's definitely interesting now that I know, and I know you and I talked a little bit about Plo Koon, for example, just as someone that you recognize after having watched like the Clone Wars and things like that, a lot of the background characters on the first time you watch it, having a limited knowledge on the universe kind of they're just background characters and then when you go through and watch it again you can go oh this is Plo Koon and a few other people that are actually they're not super important but they definitely play a part in the whole unraveling of the Clone Wars but you don't really see that or know about that unless you've kind of watched their series and in movies beforehand right absolutely 
And like I said, watching the Clone Wars and all those shows really puts into perspective of how important all these characters are and really what they're capable of, which is super cool. Um, and then we see uh, the whole Chancellor scene with him eventually trying to do a vote of no confidence with uh, Chancellor Valorum. Not super, super important, but then it really gets everyone's mind that Palpatine might become in power. And then we see the Jedi Council talk to Anakin and give him tests um, about, hey, what's this ship? What is this? What is this? And kind of holding a little screen in front of him and Anakin's guessing every single one. And then, of course, as you said, um, Yoda questions Anakin. It's like, hey, um, how do you feel? And Anakin, of course, says cold. And then uh, I think I think it's in this movie, Yoda says, um, much, much fear I sent you, Skywalker. Fear leads to hate. Anger leads to hate. Or... Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering, um, which is a very, very important line and very important um, theme throughout this whole movie. And then we kind of get the whole Metachlorian thing, which, to be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of. And everyone uh, in Qui-Gon's like, hey, oh, he's the chosen one. He's going to be trained to my Padawan. And um, everyone's like, hey, you can't have two Padawans. It's illegal. Nope, not happening. And then... Uh, Obi-Wan's like, nah, I've got it. I'm ready to face the trials. And then eventually Anakin, as we know, becomes Obi-Wan's Padawan and kind of like moves on with there. And then we kind of see them uh, travel back to Naboo. Um, then the Naboo and the Gungans create like a little cool relationship to help fight off the incoming invasion. Um and then, of course, that little battle takes place between the Gungans and the Separatist Alliance. And Anakin uh, steals a ship because my man, he did not want to stay on the ground. Um, then we see actually Darth Maul appear for the first time, too. And I don't know about you, man. When I was younger, like I was enthralled with that double lightsaber because I'm like, yo, th- you can you can do that. Because that was the first time you ever see a lightsaber shoot out of two sides rather than just one. Um, and we get to see two Jedi fighting one Sith at the time. So that I thought that was like super cool. And I know about you during that whole lightsaber situation. I would love to hear your opinion. Yeah, I mean, the first time I saw that, I was just kind of thinking the same thing. You, you've never seen anything like that before because in the originals, it's all just single, single lightsabers. And at this point, it, it kind of is a little bit mind blowing, like you said, to see two sabers and go, wow, this guy can take on two Jedi alone too. I I mean, that is kind of one of those things that is just interesting to to think about now, considering the Jedi are are supposed to be so strong and powerful um, that, you know, this one person has a lightsaber, which is tweaked, but it's still not the same as say, you know, Grievous who has a like, lightsaber uh those hands that just spin like windmills and he can go and just basically go at somebody um i do recall one of probably i think the most cinematic parts of the movie when you get to mall is when the second part comes out because they kind of like really amp it up to show you that he's got one and everyone's like okay yeah it's no big deal sideways when he does the first and then he pushes the button again, but it's kind of like a slow 
drawn out scene, I feel like. And then you see it come out. And I feel like that blew a lot of people's minds at first because I don't think there was really a lot of double sabers that were around before the um, the um, episodes one, two, and three. No, absolutely, of course. So with that whole double saber um, situation, of course, we get to see it a little bit more fleshed out and we get to see more lightsaber uh, customization or combinations throughout the entire uh, theme of Star Wars. Like we got the cross guard with Kylo Ren and this double saber is now a thing and some people hold two sabers, some are longer and shorter. Like they really expanded on it with this whole original trilogy. Um, So within that, that makes... Uh, a lot of sense, and that was super cool. Um, another another thing is we see Anakin flying this whole ship. Everyone's like, yo, who that kid is? Like, why he up here? And Anakin just starts doing an amazing job. This whole fight ensues with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Um, Gungans win their battle. Jar Jar is literally smacking fools around by being super clumsy. Um, and then we get to the scene where Qui-Gon fights Maul alone. And I don't know about you, man, but Star Wars soundtracks are incredible. We get the Duel of the Fates theme right here, probably the one of the most iconic themes in Star Wars. Um, Qui-Gon eventually does get killed by Maul. Obi-Wan fights Maul. But this is a lot of things that, um, or at least one thing that a lot of people kind of uh, question a little bit is Ray could do force healing, right? Why couldn't Obi-Wan do force healing on Qui-Gon? Um, so a lot of times, a lot of people kind of question that and go, hey, uh, why isn't this thing? I think, I think for me, um, it was the ability to kind of like prevent them from utilizing that ability for evil. Because a lot of times, um, since the Jedi Council was so big and Jedi was just really prevalent at the time, they didn't want this... Uh, healing ability to be influenced or abused because let's just say hypothetically like your padawan turns to the dark side he knows his healing ability then he can use that ability to uh help save the evil ones from dying at least that's how i kind of assumed it to be um there's no canonical answer that i found for that reason um they kind of locked that away and that was an old ancient jedi uh power that we of course now see in episode nine which is a thing um then of course qui-gon dies unfortunately and obi-wan jumps up does his thing fights maul kills maul cuts him in half sends his body flying down the shaft which we eventually see maul come back in the clone wars um, Anakin blows up one of the Trade Federation's battleships. They all shut down, and the day is saved. They have a party in Naboo, and I don't know if you notice this, man, but at the end, um, well, one thing I also got to mention too is uh, when they were all at uh, um, what's his name, Qui Gon's funeral. Uh, Windu is like, hey, we killed him, but who we kill? The master or the apprentice and the Sith. So they don't know. They don't. They don't know. Um, so that was a really interesting take because they now have to be a little more cautious. Hey, is there a um, is there a master out there? Is there an apprentice? Well, who was he? What was he? So they always got to be on their toes now 
Um, and during the end theme is a dark side theme that's played in a super high pitched key. So watch, watch the parade theme again, right? And just listen. That whole thing is, it's a dark side key, but it's very high pitched. And at the end in the credits, you can kind of hear, um, I think it's Palpatine's theme playing very, very softly in the back. But that is, that is episode one. Um, I know this is a little bit of a shorter episode. It's around 50 minutes. I know we can kind of go in a lot more detail, which we will in episode two. Unfortunately, today we didn't have a ton and ton of time, but I really enjoyed this film, and I hope you enjoyed it on a rewatch, Rusty, and um, I hope you all enjoyed listening to this, and we will be back hopefully Tuesday um, to go over episode two, Attack of the Clones, and then we will go into episode three. Um, but any final thoughts on this movie, Rusty? Not not really, no. I mean, just that there's a lot of interesting content in the film. Um, I don't think we really skipped out on anything too major. I know you and I both had a, a little bit of a time constraint for today, but I think we hit on a, a lot of the major points that end up becoming a much bigger deal um, as the series goes on. There's a lot of smaller points that are very interesting tidbits but but i i like to think we hit everything that really helps you kind of get a better understanding of what happens in episode two and kind of how things um snowball into what becomes um the um separatists yeah absolutely i think this was a incredibly great introduction to the uh the new trilogy the original trilogy um, and even the prequel trilogy. I thought this was an overall, it was a decent film. I know a lot of people's, it's their least favorite, but I enjoyed it. Had a lot of great similes, had a lot of great metaphors, and had a lot of great um, visuals just in general. I, I enjoyed the film, and on a rewatch, uh, I enjoyed it a lot more than I ever anticipated because I know when I watched it the first time and a couple other times, I was like, eh, I don't know, it's not my favorite, but now it's just one of those films now that I can actually make a lot of these connections and look at it a different way. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more, and I hopefully you all enjoy it too because our mission is to hopefully help you enjoy Star Wars a little more than it already or you already do, or if not, look at Star Wars a little bit differently. Um, but that's our episode, guys. We really thank you for stopping by and listening to our podcast. Um, once again, we're going to be doing, if all goes to plan, hopefully we're going to be doing episode two on Tuesday, Attack of the Clones. And I'm actually super excited about that because I really enjoy that movie as well. So, guys, thank you all for listening. If you have any suggestions or anything you would like to discuss, feel free to give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. And we will see you Tuesday. Take care.